Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the Arex podcast from Fathom World. This is the podcast offering insight into the changing technologies, business models, regulations and attitudes in the maritime and ocean industries. It's for experts and beginners alike, those leading the change and those needing to understand more about what's going on and why. My name's Craig Eason. I'm your host and owner of Fathom World, the news site and subscription newsletter where you can dig into more on the stories that you can find on the Aranex podcast. Part of this episode comes from Oslo, Norway. I was there on a recent press tour ahead of the Norse Shipping Exhibition, which takes place in June this year. I'll be there at Norse Shipping again hosting and moderating three days of the Blue Talks. That's the 12 one-hour chat show style talks where I get to drill down into key topics with groups of experts digging out some of the latest developments, insights and opinions. I'm going to be talking to people about new fuels, of course, green corridors, carbon capture, the latest in wind propulsion, digital connectivity, autonomous shipping, and whether we can get the crews for the ships of the future. 12 talks, 12 different topics, three days. But back to this episode, and later on, we can hear from the founder of a company in Norway that launched an electric whale watching vessel and then saw the pandemic bring tourism to a halt. Our motto is uh, we're not doing this because it's easy, we're doing it because we thought it would be easy. Uh, and uh, and that's, uh, uh, <laughs> that's a tale of lessons learned. But today this company, Brim Explorer, has spun off a technology business because it has seen the need for a technology to help maximise the power from battery to propeller. And it will also soon have five vessels in the water. Not bad for co-founders who scrabbled for money at the start to get the first vessel in the water. We'll hear more from Espen Larsen Hackabo in a few minutes. Also, we look at the growing order book for dual-fueled vessels, or more specifically the engines for the larger vessels. So it's really hot. It is, if you could say something about 2023 on two-stroke engine side, it looks like it's going to be the year of methanol engines. Man announced last month that it has won yet more orders for methanol diesel dual-fueled engines. So I spoke to Thomas Hansen, head of two-stroke sales at Man, to ask about the order book. But first, a ship owner. Clavenes Combination Carriers in Oslo. It's not a giant amongst the ship owner groups in the world, but it is notable for the vessel types that it operates. The Oslo-listed company has a fleet of what are known as combination carriers. And before I go on, I think I'll explain what they are. And for anyone who has been in the industry for a while, try and explain what's different between them and the oboes of a few decades ago. Combination carriers are designed to be able to carry both liquid and solid dry bulk cargoes. The idea is that the cargo spaces are designed with hatches for the dry bulk, but with pipework fittings to make them into tanks for the liquid bulk. They are similar in that respect to ore bulk oil, shortened to obo. Those vessels were a Norwegian invention to enable ship owners to make the most of the oil markets when they were good and the dry bulk when they were, that was good. On the recognition that those two markets were often kind of counter-cyclical to each other. You know, when one was up, the other was down. These oboes of the 1970s 
There were hundreds built. They were expensive though to maintain and cargo tank cleaning took a long time. I've met some former Shell colleagues that worked on a couple of these vessels that were in the Shell fleet a few decades ago and I can tell you that they were not well liked by the crews. Anyway, I digress. Clavenez has a more modern fleet and all of the vessels or most of them are on contracts of a freightment and uh, not used for general oil and dry bulk cargoes like the Oboes of the 70s. The company's business model is to put these vessels on trades where they carry specific dry cargo one way and specific liquid cargoes the other. Therefore, there's a very short, empty ballast leg between the discharge port and the load port. And with regard to the cargo work done per tonne CO2 emissions, a bane on most dry and wet bulk vessels, that particular leg is short. Clavenez Combination Carriers recently released its updated sustainability report. There's a growing number of ship owners now publishing sustainability reports, and in it it laid out some more details about decarbonisation plans. And in a strategy to be more visible and to communicate its business more clearly, KCC has made the unusual decision to launch its own podcast. You'll find it on all the podcast platforms. It's called Outward Bound. You'll also find it listed on Fathom World on a page where I list the growing number of maritime and shipping podcasts. KCC asked me to come into its office in Oslo and be a guest host and to interview their chief executive, Ingebrek Dahl. They gave me a list of questions, our question ideas. I rewrote them. Then I went into the office and promptly forgot most of them as Dahl and I had a very lengthy and in-depth discussion about the Clavenas plans for fleet renewal and how they fit into an overall shipping strategy. And I wanted to also ask about how they promoted their decarbonisation efforts with the help of cargo owners. Now, what this is, this is now a clip from the episode, and you'll find the full episode by looking for the Outward Bound podcast. But in this segment, I asked Dahl about the need to order its next new buildings with some fuel solution in mind, only to learn about Dahl's scepticism for the fuel-ready notations that class societies offer ship owners wanting to plan ahead. But the conversation actually kicks off, though, with a question about an emission performance contract or carbon emission adjustment factor that Clavenez has agreed with one of its cargo owners, a mining company. It's a contract where poor performance of ships results in the company losing freight and better than expected performance leading to the cargo owner, a mining company, paying higher freight. Anyway, here's Engebrek Dahl, CEO of Clavenez Combination Carriers. Too few customers today are willing to actually pay for reduce higher freight to reduce emissions. But we have started up and we are extremely pleased that one of our main customers, So32, the American miner and uh, aluminium company, uh, in, as part of a long-term contract we have with them for shipment of caustic soda into Australia, have been willing to, uh, to commit to a, uh, what we call carbon emission adjustment factor. Okay. Which actually means that our emission performance is measured against the baseline. And if we are performing better than the baseline, we get higher freight. If we are performing worse than the baseline, we get lower freight. So actually you get a carbon pricing into the into the the, the contract and the freight mechanism. And that is and an the intention or, or the requirement is that any money that we raise from that mechanism we will use on investment in our ships, in energy efficiency measures. But I think it, the important thing is that you actually get 
as I said, price on carbon into the daily operation, the chartering decisions, the scheduling, and that will drive behavior and change. I'm I'm not going to ask you about the actual amounts because I know you wouldn't tell me anyway, but you've got a a benchmark. Can you tell me at least what you set that benchmark alongside? How do you decide that benchmark? And, And also whether you've got any discussions about how you strengthen that benchmark as you find that things get better you have an agreement where that benchmark may change. Yeah, so so actually in that contract, the Software32 is a long-term customer of ours that we had for, we have been doing shipping for them and their predecessors for 30 years. So we have a long track record of data. So actually what we did, we put the baseline on our actual performance, historical performance over the last years. And then we are assuming a certain percentage improvement per year assuming that the industry itself, I mean, all our competitors, will, with the delivery of new builds, become gradually m- more efficient. So that is the, the mechanism that is there. And then, of course, there are, uh, I mean, we have a relationship that we will probably develop this mechanism as we go. We, are, we use the year to test it out uh, and know, we are, know the money is on the table from both sides. I guess the first quarter, we will actually have to pay off 32 money because we had to do some ballasts, which we didn't intend to do. So it shows that it works. Uh, but it may be we have to, after the trialing, we will have to adjust it as we go ahead in time. And important is the commitment from both sides to make it work. And just thinking a bit more long-term in the, in the future here, before we start talking about the act, well, in, in a way, talking about the fields, but I want to talk about the vessels here because you're going to have to renew your fleet hmm. in due time. I know you've got some new vessels that have come in, but all ship owners have a fleet renewal strategy. So you're going to have to look at fleet renewal or fleet expansion. I know that the you have um, got plans for growth, so it may be f- expansion as well. But my real question is about the, ne- the next generation of Clavenaire's car- uh, carriers. What sort of decisions are you going to have to make now that will enable whatever you decide with your next buildings to still be viable for you as a company 20 odd years into the future because we got all of this uncertainty. So I'm interested to find out what you as a vessel operator and owner are going through right now to make sure that whatever you put on the water, maybe in five years time or eight years time is still going to be valid, you know, 30 years into the future. And, and of course it is, it is a difficult choice. Of course, you know, ideally with the idealism that we, we have yeah, and the targets we have, we'd have loved to, f- to create the base for us to make the investments today that actually would make the ship zero mission capable at delivery. The, the, given uncertainty on which type of fuel, the, the given which will be the, the ideal fuel for going forward for the industry, the, the uncertainties regarding the technicalities, you know, we still don't have, for instance, a class regulation for use of ammonia on ships. The engines are not ready. Um, so, so at, at where we are today and with, uh, with the customer support we see, we probably are not able to make the choice of making the ships fully capable of burning ammonia or, or methanol or even, you know, uh, LNG. But, so, what, so that but, why, not, but why not? I've, hmm. I'm seeing order books for methanol, hmm. you know, increasing. I can list about 80 vessels. Yep. And I spoke to Man, 
the uh, the engine maker, who said, well, actually, we're having discussions with another 120. So we could, if that goes well, we could <laughs> see 200 methanol-fueled vessels, or dual-fueled, let's, let's be honest, they're dual-fueled, vessels in the Udaba. I mean, it's probably not going to be that, but it could be up to that. But you're telling me that's not for you. We're not saying it's not for us, but we're saying that where we are at the stage, we we believe that the, it may be better to make the, the necessary preparations to create the flexibility for, okay. for these ships to do a later retrofit, uh, while we in parallel try to work to get the things in order to take the, the decision. But of course, if you look through the list of the the people that has the companies that have contracted, you see a high proportion of them are the big container liners, which also have a different customer setup with people like IKEA or you know that actually are willing to pay for lower carbon freight. But well, that goes back to the discussion about yeah. the your cargo owners. Yeah. And 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 again, you know, and these are companies that are so immensely huge. They are willing to invest in suppliers of green methanol. They are willing to give, you know, 10 years, what we'll call take offtake agreements for the fuel. We as a small company, where we are, we cannot do that. Meaning that if we you are right, the the engines are there. So basically the technical risk for installation of, of methanol on on the ships are, are are low. So I think the, the the big uncertainty is when can you expect to get the green methanol to your mm. ships? And as we see, you know, there's no outlook of when that can happen. So that means that you put on board, was it six, seven million dollars or whatever the cost would be to make them methanol uh, capable from delivery without any outlook for when that fuel can be ready and be used. So your vessels, whenever you're going to order, more likely that they will, they, they will be methanol ready, potentially even possibly something of ammonia ready, not actually with the engines, but they'll have some of the pipework ready. You, you will have designed where for ammonia the fuel tank may go. Yeah. Of course, you know, we're not that concerned about the class notation because, you know, there are many class notations for so-called ready ships. So rather we don't want to talk about this class notation because, you know, it's, I won't say it's a scam, but at least it's it's something that is doesn't create credibility around the process. So what we're going to do is to make everything, what we can do uh, at the moment, ready, which make it easier to make the next step, which means that the superstructure of the ship has to be built in a different way mm. in order to have space for the fuel tanks behind and after, so after the ship. You need to have the strength in the deck for the for the fuel tanks, which are pretty heavy. You need to make the stability and 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 other the strength of the ships to adapt to it. You may be have a space for this fuel preparation room for these type of, of fuels, the piping, uh, making tanks ready for methanol and the, fuel, the existing fuel tanks. There's something with the coating, something with the coffer dams around it. So there are a number of things that you will do that will cost you a number of million dollars. But which will make it so so much easier and both faster and less expensive to take the next step. And the thing is, when we talk to engine manufacturers, they're saying that where do you get a dual fuel engine delivered today, capable, whether you convert it to the latest stage, has no impact on the perform the engine's performance. Okay, so you can order the latest man of Attila or yep. um, Win GD vessel, yep. put it into your ship and 
convert it at a later date once you've solved your fuel conundrum. Yeah. And you'll still get the same efficiency as if you put the engine. You do. Uh, but again, you know, don't misunderstand me, Craig. I mean, we would have loved to do it. But again, if you do uh, what you call a uh, uh, evaluation based on facts and based on where we are, on regulations, customer support, fuel availability, technical issues and, and, and outstanding issues. I think, you know, from our side, where we are today, that is probably the most likely way we're going to go forward. Anger Bregdahl, CEO of the shipowner and operator Clavenes Combination Carriers, on his thoughts on fuel readiness for the company's next look at the new building market. Now, these Clavenes vessels will likely have an engine from one of the major engine makers in whatever country the ships are really built. Quite likely China and Japan, which were where the Clavenes new buildings came from in 2021, um, but possibly, you know, South Korea or somewhere else like that. A couple of weeks ago, MAN, the engine maker, announced a new tranche of orders for methanol dual-fueled two-stroke engines. The order books are rising, and I wanted to ask MAN about the licensees who handle the orders for new engine types. You may not know it, but MAN does not actually build its own two-stroke engines. The company has engine makers around the world who have the licenses to build the engines based on the MAN designs. This includes the growing range of dual fuel engines. So I spoke to Thomas Hansen, head of two-stroke sales at MAN, about the trend. We keep a portfolio of all the ongoing projects where we know a ship owner has been in talks with a shipyard and is trying to buy a new ship. And we, of course, keep record of all these projects. And out of these, 33% right now are for methanol as a fuel. So it has uh, even surpassed the LNG right now. And um, yeah, so it's really hot. It is, if you could say something about 2023 on two-stroke engine side, it looks like it's going to be the year of methanol engines. What can you tell me about where these orders are being placed and what kind of vessels we are looking at? A lot of people will know about the large container operators, but is it largely the container um, operators and their large vessels? What's the what's the size of the engines? What What's their end use? What kind of vessels? The initial order uptake for methanol engines uh, back five years ago was for tankers, and that still goes on at a steady pace. But the new thing here is the large order order uptake for container ships primarily, and that's primarily has been for for large container ships, uh, 15,000, 16,000, 13,000 TU, and and also we saw the order for Hyundai Merchant Marine for 9,000 TU. So that is for businesses which are near to the consumer, where the operator has a clear business plan on how to charge a premium when operating on on a green fuel. Um, but we also see interest from, from bulk carrier segment and from tanker segment, apart from methanol tankers. So it, it looks a little bit like it's all over right now. Uh, it's all over the, the shipping uh, segment, um, but, but dominated by container ships. One one of one of the things when I when I look at these uh, when I look at the vessels when I look at the order book it's um, two stroke engines. Let's just be clear here. We're largely talking about two stroke engines, and they're being built in Korea, South Korea, China, Japan. 
Yes. Potentially through your licensees. And the order book is 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 quite significant. Is there going to be any kind of challenge in actually meeting that demand? I know when there was a huge rush on the order book a few years ago, well, a decade ago, when there were a lot of orders, the yard suddenly found it quite difficult to meet demand. Yeah. What's the risk of there being a demand shortage of a of a lag in delivery of um, engines? In of engines in general, there is, of course, you could say there is a relationship between the worldwide shipyard capacity for large merchant ships and then for the worldwide engine production capacity. So these things more or less fits. Um, and we also did a big analysis last year because we were also afraid. We wanted to know for a fact, is there enough engine building capacity to cater for the shipyard's uh, needs? And we found that that it is OK and it just adds up because, as you may know, shipyards are more or less full. Uh, right now, if you order a ship today, you will get it maybe in 26 or 27. Um, and 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 there are engines, no problem to get engines uh, so far uh, out in the future. The order books at the engine builders, they are in generally full for 23 already. They may have a little bit of capacity left, but 23 is booked up. Um, and 24 is, is is well on the way, but maybe only half full. So it means that that you there is plenty of capacity uh, available uh, with the ship ship uh, lead times, and there's really not so much difference if you want a fuel oil engine or a methanol engine in the general production capacity. Of course, the, of course, the license builders, they need to do some further investments if they want to have production uh, facilities to do methanol powered engines. Um, but but that comes, you could say, naturally by 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 demand. Um, so um, so, no, we don't see any bottlenecks. I, I see a lot of talk about having yeah. a future shipping industry that is fit for the future that has a versatility that they don't get locked into a dead end of you know yeah. a fuel type that isn't for the future and we can go into a lot of discussions about what those fuels are but I'm not going to do that now my question though is around the versatility and the the, the capability of an engine once it's been ordered such as a methanol or ammonia dual fuel engine to be retrofitted, so methanol to ammonia or ammonia to methanol. What's the what are the what's the pros and cons of having an engine that is multi-fuel compared to just a dual fuel? And what are the opportunities or conditions for actually retrofitting if you feel that you, that is what you want to do with a ship? Yeah. Uh, so basically, it's a, it's a it's a fundamental part of our design that that the engines has have to be uh, retrofitable. So we take that into account whenever designing a new engine. So they are all uh, with one exception, which is the autocycle uh, LNG engine for LNG carriers, the MEGA engine, all the other engine types we have, they are retrofitable. Um, so, so on that, on the design base, on the design basis, we are good. But then comes to uh, pro and co pros and cons. The thing is that if you want to make an engine which is easily adaptable into any kind of fuel, then you would need to compromise on efficiency. 
So the way we are, we the way you have to shift between fuels with engines of our design is you need to change the uh, fuel injection equipment uh, for that uh, extra fuel. So if the engine from the outset was built for using fuel oil and let's say methanol, and then you later wanted to retrofit it into using ammonia instead of methanol, then you would need to fit a new fuel system, uh, fuel supply system and fuel injection system for ammonia to the engine. And basically, uh, because you want, you would want to have the highest possible efficiency um, because the fuel is expensive and uh, efficiency is king uh, when it comes to reducing CO2 emissions, right? That was Thomas Hanton from Engine Maker Man on how ship owners can build in flexibility to new building designs. And I know full well I'll be coming back to this story again in future Aronax episodes. Now this is the Aronax podcast from Fathom World and a reminder to seek out our stories that you hear about on the podcast on fathom.world and to subscribe to the newsletter that I try to send out once a fortnight. Now back to Oslo and the breeze. Anyone who goes to Norway knows that the country is going electric. The number of small battery-powered vessels in the country is kind of impressive and one of the companies that started in 2018 is Brim. Brim Explorer. In 2019, two entrepreneurs that started the company, Espen Larsen Hakabo and Agnes Arnadotter, a Norwegian and Icelandic, won Norshipping's Young Entrepreneur Award. But then a year later, the pandemic struck, tourism died off, plans changed. Things looked difficult, but despite the challenges, this company will soon have five vessels in the water, some pure electric, some hybrid electric, and a spin-off technology company, Brim Tech. But now, while whale watching with silent vessels is a bonus, particularly for the cetaceans, and the company has made the most of its position by offering silent boat tours, with one of its boats being in the Oslo Fjord, I wanted to go and meet up with them and talk to them about the spin-off. The spin-off came about because the two entrepreneurs and their team realised that to build the boats that they wanted, they needed to rethink the power relationship between motor and propeller. So while I was in Oslo, I went on board Breeze, the company's vessel in the fjord, and met with Espen Larsen Hakabo to talk me through the decision to create the spin-off and to also explain how the business has grown so quickly. Our motto is uh, we're not doing this because it's easy, we're doing it because we thought it would be easy. Uh, and uh, and that's, uh, uh, <laughs> that, that's a tale of lessons learned. Now, one of the key lessons that we learned is that when you're uh, electrifying a ship, you have to start from scratch. You have to, you have to uh, throw all convictions out of the window and, uh, and rethink how, how you design the ship from, uh, from the hull and onwards. Uh, and uh, one of our lessons, uh, building two hybrid electric ships first, we saw that there is a lot of en- en- energy efficiency gains to be found in, in optimizing your driveline by, by basically not thinking uh, a diesel engine, a combustion engine, with all the limitations that comes with that, and, and rather seeing how can you design the optimal propeller for a hull and then finding the optimal motor for that propeller instead of uh, when you build a conventional vessel you're you're basically looking at how much energy do I need to run this ship 
uh, at the, the, a given speed, and then you're you're basically designing the propeller uh, with the limitations of the RPM, the the, the speed of the diesel motor. Uh, and the speed of a diesel motor is uh, a lot higher than what the optimal speed of a propeller is, meaning that there is always a compromise. Uh, on, on, on when we're going electric, you don't need to compromise because we have unlimited torque available in our uh, newly developed direct drive uh, in, uh, motors. So you've split out a separate kind of company from yeah. this lesson that you learned and looking at how you can take this specific technology applying battery power directly on a drive to uh, the propeller. How are you looking at um, evolving this? What, you, what would you say are sort of the key elements of this? Because I gather it wasn't easy to find partners, tech engineering companies, uh, technology companies, to actually go on that journey with you. No, that's, that's right. Uh, when we started looking for the optimal motor, we couldn't find it. Uh, they were either too heavy or not powerful enough. Uh, and uh, but we but we knew that uh, it, it 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 should be possible. So it was basically a, um, a hunt for the perfect motor. We didn't find it, but we found uh, a, um, a specialist in electromagnetism and uh, and and. and High torque motors, motor production, not for maritime use, but uh, but by teaming up with uh, DNV, uh, we were able to co-design with this company um, a motor that basically has unlimited torque in our in our range. We're uh, we're talking from from 10,000 to 50,000 newton at a very low RPM. What, do, what does that mean? Most people who are listening probably don't know what a, a newton is in this context. Uh, well, it's it's about the the torque. So basically, to to run a propeller around, you need uh, you need the torque to, uh, to to make it go around. So you can uh, and uh, and the, the the amount of kilowatts you get out of a out of the end of the propeller is basically a um, a function of the torque and the RPM. Okay. Uh, so if you want to. Uh, have the same kilowatt output at a very low RPM, you have to have more torque. Are you going to look at how this technology can be applied in other vessel types? What's your, your hope with this? We, the reason I'm asking is we see a lot of discussion about electrification in the shipping industry. And it's my impression that at the moment, batteries tend to be used on smaller vessels. Um, like the Brim Explorer vessels, not on in so much in, in commercial. But I'm, I'm seeing some belief that the technology for batteries, there's a lot more power density in the batteries now. They're, getting, they're, they're more economical to run. Do you see a future where there's going to be a lot more demand for your kind of uh, direct, direct drive batteries, I guess? Uh, well, yeah, uh, it's a di direct drive motor. We, we still have a, a, ca a cable and a converter to kind of convert the energy. But, but uh, what, what we've done is that we've, we've basically gone back uh, to, to simpler, um, uh, go, go, gone back in time. If you look at, at an old steamer, they had a direct drive motor because the motors on steamer were very slow moving and they would have a large propeller. So we're, we're basically taking, going a step back in, in terms of applying new technology to old um, conventions. The, the potential is, is there for, for every, uh, every efficient propulsion line. If you want to make your propulsion line more efficient, you need to take away the, the mechanical losses that you have in a gear. You need to uh, 
uh, be able to optimize your propeller and have a more efficient propeller. And uh, um, in uh, in cruise ships or, or bigger ships, they already have a direct drive. Uh, some of them already have a direct drive, and some of them even have a direct drive electric motor. What uh, what we found is that this is also possible for smaller vessels by by utilizing our motors. When it comes to other vessel types, what we've identified as our core market would be uh, passenger vessels of, uh, of sizes from 10 to 50 meters, high-speed crafts uh, of the same size, but we're also actually having now a request for a bulk carrier of uh, 70 meters to, uh, to carry concrete. So it's, it's basically um, very versatile because what you have is, uh, is a very powerful small motor that can uh, propel a ship. Let's, let's go back to um, the company. The company is about five years old now, and you, you've split off this more technology-focused part of the business uh, from the tourism mm-hmm. aspect, aspect of it. But during those five years, we've had the lockdowns, we've had the pandemic, we've had a lot of, well, basically, no tourism. How have you managed to keep the business going so successfully? And actually, for five years, you've got five vessels. It's almost like every year you've been, on average, been able to build up the number of ships you've got. So you've done remarkably well as a kind of startup vessel owner. I, th- I think we've been very fortunate uh, in terms that we, we hit a nerve when we when we launched our first ship. We uh, we went right into operation uh, from the yard, right into operation, and had a very successful five months of operation where we uh, proved our concept. Uh, before the lockdown. Then during the lockdown we got our second ship uh, in May. Um, That was of course a difficult period uh, but it also gave us a lot of opportunities to test uh, test new things. Uh, We had um, we we basically moved our ships uh, and that's the benefit of having a ship rather than building a hotel. Uh, You can move to where there are people so we we basically put one ship uh, in 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 the one destination that Norwegians went on holiday in 2020 which was Lofoten Islands, uh, and then we put the other vessel in Oslo, where, which is the capital and also the most populated area. So when we were allowed to operate, we operated, and, uh, and that way we kept our crew, we kept our, uh, our um, company going, and uh, of course we had a, a small loss in 2020, but we built that quite quickly up again in 2021, and 2022 was a success. And, uh, so um, by, uh, yeah... By uh, just uh, seeking the opportunities where they are, being mobile and being flexible, we, we managed to uh, to get through that period as well. So you've got three vessels in operation now, one in Oslo, one in Lofoten, and a third one in Svalbard, right yeah, well, up in the very top. Yeah. Our, our third vessel is actually at the moment in Tromsø. It's getting ready to go to Svalbard now when the ice, uh, when the ice disappears. And uh, it'll be, uh, we'll go up uh, mid-April, start operations first of first of May in, uh, in Svalbard. And the two vessels that you are currently, well, one's going to be delivered in the summer this year and another one next year. So what's the, what's the plan? Are they also hybrid? Are they electric? Uh, they are hybrid ships with fully electric drive lines, uh, but they have then range extenders that, uh, that can allow you to operate for longer distances without, uh, without um, shore charging. And one of them 
is going to be going up to Svalbard. Yes, one will replace uh, the ship that we have already in Svalbard because we're, what we're seeing is that uh, our first generation <laughs> that we built three years ago, four years ago, uh, electric uh, or hybrid electric ship is spending more or, or is using more fuel than, uh, than we like. So we're putting that into an operation where it doesn't demand so much diesel uh, and then we're putting our most efficient vessel in operation in, uh, in uh, Svalbard. And that's just because we travel very long distances in these in these places to go up to Svalbard and stay in Svalbard. Yeah, just to, to yeah, staying in Svalbard and operating there. Yeah. And finally, you've got this relationship with Norled. Now you've got a partnership with Norled. That's true. We're uh, we're trying out a new a new uh, form of partnership uh, with the biggest uh, fast ferry operator in Norway called Norled, where they they've won a public tender that requires them to have a spare vessel in case of technical downtime or when they have, pla- have planned maintenance to sustain the the operation throughout the year. Uh, now. In, uh, in most tenders, that would be a vessel that would lie K-side for the whole year uh, and only be used for those few days. Now, we, we've then uh, teamed up with Nuled and uh, we've built uh, a vessel together uh, where we have designed it. We're using our technology, our uh, design, um, and operating as a 100% fully electric vessel for 90% of the year and for the few days that we need to operate in the public tender we have uh, range extenders that can take us up to uh, 30 knots uh, speed uh, over a longer period of time. What sort of differences would that be in sort of operational profile when it's normally your vessel it'll be operating at a slower speed and you'll be getting more operational time with the batteries correct but when it when you've got all this with this range extender you'll be operating at much more public sector yeah. speed yeah basically it's uh, as, as a public tender going between uh, uh, remote islands in the in the north of Norway uh, there are long distances to be covered and uh, we need to be able to to sustain the the route of the of the public tender so then we have to go fast but for for the remaining part of the year, uh, we're a tourism company. We can choose routes that are not as um, demanding, uh, and we don't have to travel those long distances to show our tourists and our, our guests uh, the most interesting places around where we're going. When you started Brim back in 2018, how did you secure the financing to be able to do this, to make this decision, I'm just going to become a vessel owner? It's not something you can just decide over a cup of coffee one day with a couple of co-founders it takes a lot of investment and it takes a lot of a lot of planning how did you secure the interest um, of the of the backing that you needed for this well I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't over a cup of coffee I'm, uh, I'm, I'm more inclined to say it was over uh, over a couple of beers uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, now we, we were operating uh, we were uh, renting ships and operating uh, whale watching with uh, with uh, wooden uh, wooden ships uh, and looking at our operations and looking at the competition we saw that we can do this a lot better. We can do this a lot better if we if we can design our own ship and and make it more sustainable and make it better suited for the operation. So that was our starting point. And then uh, obviously neither me nor my co-founder coming from uh, from wealthy families, we had to find the resources to to make this happen. Uh, so we reached out to a lot of friends and family and. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Friends, families, and fools. <laughs> um, 
and uh, we uh, we raised uh, about one million one one and a half million euros, uh, which was enough to to get us building the first vessel and get a proof of concept. Uh, we also got uh, some public funding. We got a, a loan, a risk loan of one million euros from the from the government. Uh, and we got uh, some support from the environmental fund to to make a hybrid electric vessel, and then uh, the rest was the bank. Yeah, and then uh, going forward, we got a contract for a second vessel and uh, and uh, raised money through through basically showing to a, a proven concept and uh, and the contract. So where, where's the company going to go to now? You've got what five vessels soon. Um, under your belt in ownership um, and you've got the technology division now is the focus going to be on the technology or on the tourism well basically the two co-founders we we haven't split up but we've uh, we've uh, taken control of uh, each part of the company so I'm, I'm leading the tech division and, uh, and my co-founder is leading the tourism division there is a lot of overlap obviously but uh, but we're we're then building two separate teams uh, and uh, to take uh, to, to be able to focus on both uh, both uh, operations, so to say. Yeah. Good, Espen, thank you very much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, and thank you for coming on board. Espen Larsen Hackabo from Brim Explorer talking to me on Breeze, one of the company's electric vessels, about new technology needs and the demands they see for electric-powered vessels. So that's it for this episode. This is now the 67th Aronax episode. Let's see if I can get to 100 by the end of the year. So please spread the word, like it and especially share it so we can spread the word about the changes of the shipping and maritime space. Help us find more listeners and subscribers to the Fathom World newsletter. And feel free to get in touch. Any ideas welcome. Until the next time, I'm Craig Eason. Goodbye. Thank you.